Hello and welcome. I'm Al Barrows, and this is UFO Disclosure, the podcast that's meant to show an average person's reaction to all the UFO, UAP news from everywhere and anywhere. Today, I have the distinct honor and pleasure of having Leslie and Stephen Shaw on as guests. They are the authors of an exciting new book called Who Are They? And Why Are They Here? And I'm going to put up a picture of their incredible book so that you guys can know what it looks like and are able to identify it and go out and buy it. So that's the great cover to their book. Um, thank you so much, uh, Leslie and Stephen, for coming on as guests. I couldn't wait to talk to you guys after reading the book. I think it comes at a perfect time when the average person is confused about the whole UFO phenomenon, especially after recent developments. Thank you both for taking the time to write this well-researched book and providing some degree of clarification. Thank you. So who are they and why are they here is what everyone wants to know. And you give us a theory backed up by research. Not very many people do that. Yes, and just to clarify, the book is who they are and what they're up to, just for your audience. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's right in front of me. I should have read it right from the screen. Well, it's an easy-to-remember title. I, sh I shouldn't have made that mistake, so I apologize. Um, I'm going to jump... Thank you so much uh, for reading it and caring and uh, reaching out. But if I may, I would like to jump into something that you said in Chapter 16 that really hooked me, and I think uh, a lot of my audience should pay attention to. And I'm quoting from Chapter 6. You say, and I quote, they're lying to us in an effort to keep us looking up when we really should be looking down. We know they deceive us and pretend to be visiting aliens. We think this is to draw attention away from the fact that they are not visiting but living here under our feet. And, you know, you know, unconsciously thought about that many times, but um, you guys have actually done the research to prove that's a very distinct possibility. Yes. And um, I thought I would just jump right in with that. Um, I hope you don't mind, but um, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think most people are still looking up and uh, even the experts uh, in ufology are telling us to look up. And I tend to end my podcast by reminding people to look up. But you're so right. Um, they could be here right underneath our feet and have been living with us forever, which accounts for the many sightings that we see. And the inexplicable megalithic architecture of the deep past. And it explains why they're mutilating cattle. It explains, you know, a lot of theories. And we came up with this theory uh, a couple, 20 years ago or so. Wow. And uh, we started throwing things at it to see if it, if it was still a valid theory. And everything we tried to throw at it, it, it still remained valid. As an yep. example, the, the cattle mutilation, I always boil it down to one simple word, and I call it necessity. What is the necessity for exsanguinating all the cattle that they take cauterizing the eyes, taking the sex organs, unless they had a reason. It's not research and development. It wouldn't and, need millions of them done. You know, it's, it's a need. They're, they're filling, fulfilling a need they have here on our planet. And, you know, 
frequently UFOs are seen coming out of lakes or oceans right. or volcanoes or the sides of mountains or the sides of mesas. It seems like they have the technology to open up a hole in a solid object, fly in and out of, and then close it. It's almost like a, a duck blind. And uh, they're frequently seen just traveling horizontally in our space, like they're traveling from one place to another here on Earth. As the great Maya Angelou once said, though, watch what they do, not what they say. And uh, especially with my early experiences and all throughout my life, I can tell you for a fact uh, with my family and my experiences that it's not just people coming or, or beings coming from outer space, just that they're interested. They have a multi-generational interest in uh, certain bloodlines and certain people. Right. And we... We look at the gray aliens as being practically human. They're mistaken for human from 50 feet away. Uh, people think, oh, I'm looking at a 10-year-old child. And then they realize, wait a minute, the heads are too large and the eyes are too black. But when you look at our closest relative here on the planet, the, the bonobo chimpanzee, uh, they're nothing like us. They can't really walk upright uh, comfortably. They're still escape into the trees uh, for protection. When they run, they're still running on all fours. Whereas the gray aliens walk perfectly upright, just like us, which means they must have the same or very similar musculature. Uh, they, the proportions the, from the ankles to the knees to the hips is about the same as ours. There, we have a lot more in common physically with gray aliens than we do with any other known relative on our planet. And it, it also struck me that even if the other uh, alien races were taken into account, the ones that people are describing, they're still mostly describing bipedal hominids. And uh, the, then we began realizing that there's a lot of ancient literature about civilizations deciding to go underground. And there was, of course, then all the flood myths. The, uh, the flood myths point to a joint jointly experienced worldwide catastrophe um, of some kind. And then sure enough, the Hiawatha asteroid is, crater is finally discovered. And we knew it was there. We, we, we had learned 20 years ago that the, um, there were nano diamonds in the Ucello horizon and the Younger Dryas boundary, the soil layers of 13,000 years ago that pointed to a celestial impact of some kind. Uh, the nanodiamonds form in no other way except the dust particles that are around a celestial impact. Uh, they superheat coming through the atmosphere and turn into these microscopic little round diamonds. And uh, those were found in 13,000-year-old soil. And uh, it also co uh, coincided with the known extinction events of the time, the mammoth, the mastodon, and so on, the dire wolf. Etc. Yeah, the Clovis people. And the Clovis people of North America also were uh, disappeared at that time period. So uh, it pointed to a celestial impact, but nobody could find the crater until the ice sheet uh, melted enough to expose northern Greenland and uh, the crater was discovered there in 2016, which sort of cemented our theories that this is maybe why a civilization might go underground. I like to joke about it real well. I like to joke about saying that we, we had the dead body. We just had to find the murder weapon and we found both. 
Uh-huh. So it really helped us to uh, solidify what we have found in, with our research. Our, a lot of our research goes way, way back before social media. Uh, a lot of the books that I read, especially uh, especially Bramley's work, The Gods of Eden, and a lot of uh, a lot of other works to uh, forbidden archaeology. You know, actually doing serious research and actually putting some thought into it. I know that uh, in Chapter Ten, you guys say that you believe after uh, a flood or the Great Flood a few intraterrestrials, and just for my audience, intraterrestrial is exactly what it sounds like, the aliens that live underneath our feet. Uh, These come back to the surface and use their superior knowledge and tech to build the megalithic sites, which I think you alluded to uh, before, Leslie. And then they just return. set themselves up as gods of these civilizations. Uh, Viracocha and... uh, is one so they've been playing god all these thousands of years haven't they right um and i think you state in the book that they can't get away with that anymore so to speak because we've become too sophisticated uh prime example i think that you use in the book is that everyone carries a camera with them on their cell phone and uh this pretty much put a stop to them playing gods but uh, it also forced the government you say in chapter two to adopt a new policy in relation to UFOs. And if I might quote, because I thought it was a catchy um, policy, the way you named it, you named it the, quote, gosh, gee, we admit these things exist, but we have no idea what they are. So you guys believe that this allows the government to pretend to be participating in the search for the truth. So I guess you guys don't buy into what's going on right now with the uh, trans quote-unquote, transparency of the government as of late. Certainly when the, um, when the Elizondo videos were released to the New York Times, we expected the government to stonewall us as usual, uh, like the last 80 years, and say, oh, it's not real, it's fake, it's swamp gas, it's mass hysteria, whatever, right? right. And they shocked us all by coming out with this new policy they came out and said no these are real we don't know what they are here's the full videos they actually released the three incidents in full and uh, all our jaws just dropped and we thought Uh. wow this is wonderful is this different is this new or but you know the old um the old policies of uh ridiculing witnesses coercing whistleblowers uh, um, sitting on a lot of information. These, these policies are still going on, as far as I can tell. Uh, the whistleblower in the congressional hearings recently, David Grush, I believe, right, Steve? Right. Yes, the intel investigator. Yes. The intelligence yeah. officer, yes. He, he says he's been experiencing a very stern uh, blowback for being a whistleblower. And he's actually in several lawsuits fighting for his freedom and you know um so he's an example of that the policy really hasn't changed as far as they still want to sit on whistleblowers and information and one of the enormous uh uh mind-blowing things that took place at that hearing was i believe it was fravor it was one of the two pilots. Uh, there was Fravor and there was um, it was fravor he was involved with the nimitz on the yeah West the Coast. nimitz incident you know I think it was he that said, um, really, only reporting is at about 5%. And we see Hmm. these things 10,000 times a year. That means what we're really seeing is 
200,000. If, if, if we extrapolate uh, 10,000 as 5% of something, then it's 200,000 uh, real sightings per year. And he also said, um, again, I'm not sure which pilot, but it was the... Uh, Ryan Graves. Yeah, Ryan Graves was one of the other pilots too. And he said, one of them said that they're seeing these objects at every time the Navy goes anywhere with right. in a carrier group. Yeah. So they're, they're still sitting on an enormous pile of uh, video and data and, and knowledge that they're not sharing. So I think the policy is just, they've cracked open a little bit, but they're still engaging in a lot of their older uh, activities. Yeah, the old policy would be the three levels of, uh, first, uh, basically uh, make fun of it and just say, oh, this, you know, you guys are seeing something that we already have. And then basically to uh, vehemently deny or to harass. And then at the last level is to really, truly threaten. And they don't seem like they can quite get away with that same level of, um, of, of, of uh, you know, harassment with people. But like I say, like it is because it's true. Everybody does have a camera, and it's a lot more available, the evidence. And as an example, I wanted to cite uh, about 20-some-odd years ago, the Air, the Air Force came out and said, we finally have disclosed what really happened at Roswell 1947. And they released videotape of crash dummies being released from an airplane. And the funny thing about that was that they didn't even have that program even in in place until about the mid 1950s. So they were they were releasing stuff that happened eight to ten years after the Roswell event and saying, "Okay, now we finally said this is this is our explanation for the misidentified bodies at at Roswell," which is hilarious, yeah. really. Obfuscation and lies have just been the status quo for so long, and uh, I think it's there may be factions inside the government that want more disclosure and more whistleblowing and certainly congress some some congress persons are uh, members are uh, working towards more disclosure can i ask you a question why do you think the government is so intent on covering this up um why is this something the government can never disclose to the public it seems well if you look at it just from a logical standpoint from the one from the one hand uh, uh, the vast majority of people don't want to know that there's a superior version of ourselves or a superior race that's been literally living under our floorboards for thousands potentially thousands of years and then you look at too what impact it would have on the major religions of the world and also too what it would have on the on the stock markets and the different economic things such as that we are not the top dogs on the planet, and uh, we've been ba basically being lied to, to. So I think there's quite a few just basic common sense reasons why they, and also too, we are getting a, um, we are getting a, uh, you know, we are getting technology from them, from what we can find. We're doing right. a, you know, we, we think that uh, Eisenhower met with the Nordic aliens. Nordics, by the way, are indistinguishable from human beings supposedly right and he supposedly met with these these beings and made an agreement to let them keep taking the abduction program individuals they need for their requirements and that we would continue to keep their secret for them 
And in exchange, we would receive little dribs and drabs of their technology. We think this is the pact that they entered into. And the, you can see the military mind thinking, well, the technology will save lives. So it's fine to let them take a few of our individuals for experimentation and put them back mostly and not hurt them, but still terrify them and, and uh, abduct them and harass them their whole lives. Uh, but, you know, it's fine as long as they get the technology they want. And of course, if they ever did really enter into this evil pact, that would have to be kept secret forever. They could never. And if we, we, need, we need to look no further for a motive if this pact is really had been entered into. That's, uh, I certainly agree with that. And I'm so happy that you mentioned that because that makes so much sense. When I read that in your book, everything fell into place. Um, Doesn't it go ding suddenly when uh, exactly. you start <laughs> looking at it? You know? I know that um, in the book you say that Nordics are an advanced uh, version of us or the Adamic race that went underneath the ground, or did I misread that? No, um, it's, it is um, my guess, or our guess, that this is... Okay, it's, it's either that uh, regular humans with regular lifespans are there, or is it possible that this Adamic race um, mentioned in the Bible where the people live longer, they live, you know, to a thousand years, Methuselah and, and them. Right. Um, it's possible that, that if, if this people that were wiped out by Hiawatha's impact, for the most part, except for the, the arcs they dug for themselves into the ground, and maybe we think they had a space program too. So we think they probably to a certain extent escaped into space. Well, that uh, makes, that makes sense because um, we probably, as you say in the book, would make a pact with aliens um, about yeah. uh, abductions being allowed. But if their descendants or a fellow human beings that fellow are more advanced, yeah, yeah, it would make more sense. Have you, do you remember the, the story about Valiant Thor? The visitor yes. at the Pentagon and the White House. Yeah, he looked very human. I've there seen was a, pictures. He, he looked like a red-haired Caucasian man. Right. So we're looking, and he said he's from Venus. Okay, well, yeah. that's a lie. <laughs> I'm so glad you debunked that because so many people still buy into it. Yeah, you can't, there's no life like us on Venus. I mean, there might be some, some, mm -hmm. uh, those kind of bacteria that can survive anywhere, but not and, us. And also of uh, what we also discovered because we, we, we read the Ethiopian Bible and of course, the, you know, the chapter of Enoch and Enoch uh, absolutely explains being taken up into space and seeing the earth from space. And Enoch, and interestingly, he was the father of Methuselah, Methuselah, the father of Lamech and Lamech, the father of Noah. They're all long lived around about a thousand years but when you when you take a look as far as one of them was called the shining one when he was born, I think that was was that Noah? Yes. Uh, yes, Noah. So you, you see the this this connection here, and it makes sense. What Enoch is describing is is being taken up onto a spaceship. I mean, if you if you read it, it's it's really quite fascinating if, to find out the the correlations. And you no, know, he's when he's describing, he's not talking about you know, uh, meeting with insectoids. He's talking about meetings with, with you know, humans or human-looking uh, entities. Right. 
and all the other aliens described um, in various abduction phenomena, they're all bipedal hominids, with the exception of the insectoids. But um, from sketches I've seen of the insectoids, they remind me of the tall, spindly grays, but that they've somehow been twisted and genetically modified. Uh, the limbs are much longer, and the elbows and the knees bend the opposite way. Um, the hips, of course, bend the opposite way. It's almost like somebody has taken a, a, a genetic scalpel to, to a, an existing race of, that we are familiar with, the grays, of course. But once again, uh, even the reptilians, are bipedal hominids. Why are they, are, are we supposed to believe these things that have so much in common with us and how we move and how we stand? They're supposed to have evolved in another star system and visit here 200,000 times a year because it's just so easy? I'd like to jump ahead a little bit and Leslie and Steve, please let me know if I'm revealing too much. Um, I'm just trying to give a taste for our audience as to, uh, by the way, folks, this book has so much more than I'm um, covering right now. This is just the tip of the surface. I'm going to refer to Chapter 15 right now because we, we're we talking, we're sort of um, uh, coming up on the actual subject of the aliens themselves and who they are. And you say in Chapter 15 that if aliens really are involved at all, we believe Zachariah Sitchkin's theories are more plausible than most other visiting theories. And when you talk about the fact that there wouldn't necessarily be a wormhole involved in them getting here and how the orbit of their planet, Neribu, brings them close enough that they could just use regular rockets, it made so much sense that the Anunnaki yeah. are the aliens. Yeah. There's no time travel. There's no interdimensional travel. There's no wormhole theory that has yet to be proven to exist there you don't have to travel um hundreds of thousands of light years you don't have to they're in the same solar system as we are just in a, a very large uh orbit extension out into the outer reaches 3600 year uh 30 uh, 3600 year uh, right is, that is makes so much sense said. Yeah. The the interesting thing with, with Sitchin is that he spent the vast majority of his life actually being um, uh, etymologist. He was, you know, he was a master at decoding and, uh, you know, uh, a Babylonian, linguist, yeah. a linguist, a Babylonian, Sumerian. And then, but then we found Hebrew, the king's, the king's list. <laughs> we found the king's list that somebody took the time to write down the reigns and the lengths of, of the times of reigns of the uh, Sumerian gods back in the golden age when they said the when the gods used to walk amongst men and it, it pretty much divides down to um, every year of rain is basically 3600 years to them so there is an element too of there being much longer lived than 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 we are as humans if the Anunnaki and it are real and they're not just um, you know some myth or fabrication um, then I think the evidence would be in whether or not we have been uplifted. Uh, the Anunnaki are said to have uh, taken chimp-like creature and changed it into a human worker to work the mines they wanted for their gold. If, if human beings really do show any 
signs in our genetic code of uplifting, where someone tinkered with our genetic code at some point, then we know that aliens were involved because we can't uplift ourselves. So um, that's the real question. And it, we're, we're going to be looking at it a lot closer in our next book. We're going to try and uh, really go into the, the find a scientist that's doing genome work and, and find out what they think. And... More, more, of my, <laughs> more of my specialty. I haven't been a state licensed acupuncturist for 20 years and um, studying a lot about the human mind and about the human uh, nervous system, of course, with the acupuncture yeah, channels. Is, medical experience was invaluable. That, <laughs> what I found very interesting at uh, one of the recent lectures we heard from Jace, Jason uh, Martell that I went to was that there was obvious tinkering that happened with the neocortex, which is the most uh, recently evolved part of the, of the human brain, which is like a very thin cardboard type layer that is uh, this is over the frontal cortex. And there's finding signs that there was uh, just a couple of one one particular aspect that looked like they called a patch job, where where it's near Broca's brain, which is part of the speech center or the main part of the speech center, that it looks like it was literally kind of welded in there. In other words, about 300,000 years ago, we all of a sudden uh, developed speech, you know, as, as, as Homo sapiens sapien. So we're looking at the jump between, we believe like about Homo erectus to Homo sapiens sapien in a very, very short evolutionary time which doesn't make sense unless you had help. Right. There's actually two big missing links. There's the, the missing link between Australopithecus and uh, Homo habilis, I believe it is, earlier, way earlier, like, you know, one, some, some million years ago. But uh, the rec more recent gap is between uh, Homo erectus and Homo sapien where in 50,000 years, it appears we evolved about a million years. It's an enormous jump. And of course, the fossil record is, is very sketchy. We, I think we have 2% or something of the fossil uh, record of the actual world. If that. If that. So, of course, we could be missing a, a, um, another creature in between. But, we, but if we were uplifted, then there will not be a creature in between. So that accounts for the missing this, this, link. This, the species was uplifted and we were improved. So uh, were hybrids of the Homo erectus and the Anunnaki and the people living under our pl planet might just have a higher percentage of the Anunnaki DNA, say? Or the, they're members of the Adamic race. We think the priest class of the Anunnaki were human or more human, but they also were maybe had more Anunnaki blood in them. We're not really fully sure because, of course, the record is pretty sketchy. But these are Sitchin's translations. It's not just, it's not us making this up. The, the Anunnaki in these tablets claimed to have taken, you know, a, a, a creature that wasn't smart enough to be a worker and uplifted us into one. Right. Again, it was done out of necessity because there was apparently a revolt that was happening amongst some of the Anunnaki. They just didn't want to do the work anymore. So said, hey, Anki comes along, says, oh, I can I can solve this problem. You know, just give me a little bit of time. You know, so and also we found evidence, too, of mines down in uh, uh, South Africa and other areas such as that that go back 
way past 50,000 years ago that are very deep mines that show evidence of, of, of definitely having to have uh, a, a certain high degree of, of at least mining technology. And uh, we know that the Americas were settled much earlier than, and Sitchin talks about this, how the ancient Anunnaki came to the Americas looking for gold too. And that's, and they brought their workers with them, which is why the early uh, Olmecs have these African features. The, uh, the African mines were supposed to be where most of the mining was done. And uh, they had African American, I mean, African looking uh, people, you know, uh, Negroid faces on the blocks because they were actually the imported workers from Africa. And uh, Sitchin does amazing research and we, we actually really like his theories. But one, one way or another, 13,000 years ago, when the people before Hiawatha were in control of the planet, they were spread all over the planet. They were building, building pyramid complexes all around the world and uh, with their, what we think were mining operations all around the world. And whoever went underground, whether Anunnaki, part Anunnaki, fully human, see, if, it was, if, the, if they were fully human, their, pla- their world was destroyed, they still had all their technology, and they had a surface full of savages to deal with, they could have constructed any mythos they liked. They could have constructed the entire Anunnaki mythos or the entire Osiris mythos. But we don't think so because of the evidence, uh, especially because of the physical evidence of uplifting in our genetic code. One of the things we do know, and this is for sure, that in, of over the 1,200 different um, flood myths that have been uncovered, at least at, to this point, is that Everybody had some degree of forewarning by a disembodied voice or by some other means of communication. We don't know whether it was like a year or two years. Some were told to, uh, you know, go to the highest points in the country. Some were told, like in Derinkuyu, to build underground cities. Uh, Ahura Mazda said that, hey, you're going to experience a winter like you've never seen. So these are things we know that there is foreknowledge and forewarning that there was an impending catastrophe and it was going to be a flood these things you cannot deny because they are just right there just and to it's, see it's welded into the most ancient lore of all of our different cultures so it's obviously a, it was a worldwide shared event at uh, at one point and that that gave us pause it's like okay well maybe this is a real event maybe this really took place and then sure enough, nano diamonds were discovered in the Ucello horizon and the Younger Dryas boundary, which is the smoking gun for a celestial impact. So we know it's there, um, but then it took another two decades for somebody to find the crater. Now, I know you say in the book that uh, most of the Anunnaki probably have returned to Neribu and have left their Adamic race uh, of humans in charge of their earthbound projects. Um, I'm assuming those are the Nordics that uh, you describe in your book. I believe so. I think these Nordics are essentially the masters of the planet, the underworld and the upper world. Um, we think they represent the uh, the humans that survived the cataclysm, but with their technology intact. So they're at least 13,000 years more advanced than we are. 
all the people on the surface, we were thrown back into the Stone Age. We were lucky to survive. In fact, um, genetic models show that at one point our our population dwindled to something like about 10,000 individuals. And the entire population of the Earth right now has been regenerated from those 10,000 individuals. Yeah, they call the the, the uh, genetic bottleneck. And, you know, with our advancing technology, we're able, uh, you know, genealogical research and CRISPR, we're able to basically say, okay, this is when the bottleneck occurred, which is basically a narrowing of the diversity of the human genome. Right. So we it pointed we, to a mass cataclysm that, that nearly wiped us out. And sure enough, it's it kind of so funny much... to know all about the Hiawatha asteroid impact because it's the most significant event to ever happen to the human race ever. And almost no one knows about it. Yes. I mean, one, of, one of the reasons we wanted to publish the book was to talk about that. I'm so glad else. you highlighted <laughs> it because I wasn't even aware of it. Um, thank you so much for bringing that into the forefront. I know that um, a lot of people are talking about it's It's trendy to talk about reptilians and greys. And you go into that and you address that as well. And that's what I love about your book. Um, you've thought about this. You have uh, plausible theories. And your take on that, which I'm sure... A lot of my audience are anxious to hear is that um, they're sort of subservient to the Nordics, or did I misread? No, the tra the uh, the evidence of Travis um, Walton, the uh, the guy that got abducted in Arizona in front of six of his friends and fire in the sky. That guy, remember right. that? Yes. Um, he first testifies to the fact that he was taken by Greys and on the ship, he freaked out and the greys receded back away and were replaced by two humans. He thought they were humans there to rescue him, but they were in, in coverall outfits, kind of like that looks like spacesuits. And then it, it finally dawned on him that that's no, they're, they're part of this. So we think they are working together. We think the, the, uh, and the way the greys are always described as emotionless automatons, just down to business. They never mill around wondering what to do next. They always are very goal-driven, showing zero emotion. That uh, it makes us think that they might possibly be modified race. That makes Maybe sense. the Nordics and... pick up a genetic modification, like like we would pick up any tool. Oh, we need an underground. We need underwater work done. Let's genetically engineer some reptilians that can breathe underwater. They may not think about scuba suits. They might think about genetically modifying somebody, something that, that can do the work. That makes sense because uh, human beings are so emotional. Um, we tend to rebel and uh, know that the greys are emotionless. Um, you say in the book that you both believe that ETs seemed concerned about us, or there's a lot of talk about them being concerned about our planet. Um, but you've pretty much proven that they live here. Wouldn't that make a reason for them being concerned about our planet? And you also talk about them needing our DNA. And if I'm not mistaken, you refer to their relationship with us almost as parasitic or symbiotic. Yes. Which I thought was brilliant. Um, that pretty much puts it in a nutshell and makes sense as to what's going on here. Um, 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but can you talk about that just a little bit? Sure. Um, one of the things that when we started researching 20 years ago, we realized that the, the UFO facts and the UFO theories were not lining up, especially when it came to abduction. Uh, the theories were, oh, they're just interested in us. These visitors from another star system are just curious. They're going to take the occasional person just so that they can get some genetic samples. But that's not what was happening at all. What we discovered was that um, people are being taken again and again and again and again through their lives. It's like they find a genetic uh, sample that they like. They put a tracker in them. And then they take them again every four or five months or however often and uh, take their genetic samples again and again and again. And then they start taking their children and their children's children. And then they, uh, it also is, it's this weird cross-section that they're taking of our race mostly. I believe it was 94.6% of this one uh, study I read that um, the abductees are Caucasian. So right. they're interested in the Caucasian race in particular. Why? Who knows? I mean, except that it's, we only make up like 18 something percent. We make up about 16%. 16%. Yes. So we're certainly not, they're not taking a cross section of our population. Certainly. It's like they're interested in a, a particular product that they keep taking over and over again. And uh, I, I make the analogy in the book to a cow, like a farmer has a cow, right? He puts it out in the field to make milk, eat grass and make milk. Then he takes it in, takes the milk, and then he puts it back in the field to make more milk. And I think that's what they're doing with us is they take a sample, they take the eggs or the sperm or whatever it is they're after, and then they put us back to regenerate more eggs and more sperm so that they can take us again later and, and again and again and again. So it's more like a harvest than it is a scientific study of any kind. Yes, we see it as a genetic necessity because of quite possibly having become a primarily an underground uh, race, which has a lot of benefits when you think about it. There's geothermal down there, there's water, there's protection from celestial impacts. And then we also what we found in our book, which I found kind of enlightening, was just how frequently these asteroid and meteor impacts occur i mean they're not just once in a while every million years these things just a couple major ones happen one in australia and one in south africa i believe just in the past five thousand years so if you find your civilization keeps on getting knocked back into the stone age and you have the technology to to survive underground possibly possibly the uh the negatives of that is less genetic diversity so Right. They, the population may become non-viable over time underground. And maybe that is why they need to take the same genetic material again and again. And why, why Caucasian? Maybe they are a splinter off of the Caucasian race from 13,000 years ago. I, when you look at a gray, what I see is a human being that's been underground for 13,000 years. And I know that you point out the fact that uh cow blood can be used for transfusions on humans, so that would account for the cattle mutilations. Um, we also think that when they went underground, they may have taken herd animals with them and uh, as food sources, and uh, it's possible that they still have them and that those, those herds are becoming non-viable 
as well. And that may be why the cattle mutilation. And what, what we also found too, which we both kind of found interesting is if you look at the mythos of uh, vampires and how similar they are to the um, ET abductions, they are number one, they always come in the wee hours of the night. They're pale. They're pale. They can hypnotize you or somehow immobilize you. They always take your blood, which is genetic material. They're very long-lived, and they can shapeshift. So when you really look at it, there's a lot of parallels, which I thought. Right. We think the mythos may be the, the abduction phenomenon, maybe the source of that mythos, right? And the, the succubus Yes, it, it, it's just common sense when you look at it. And then the succubus and incubus mythos. It also has the sexual component in it that we think has to do with their breeding program. And that's another thing, this genetic material they need. It may be that it's just required uh, building blocks for the genetic breeding program that interbreeding with us and literally making hybrids. Star children such as that. <laughs> I know. I know it couldn't sound crazier if I were making it up, but I'm not making it up. There's been thousands of women who claim to have been impregnated by aliens and then four months later they're taken again and the fetus is removed and sometimes this happens multiple times in their lives so that all their children are just lost to them stolen away and the gynecologists say having taken the mris that yes you were pregnant and now it looks like you were never pregnant well that's not possible not the MRI, the, the ultrasound but yeah the uh, the ultrasound they look at it the, and it, it looks like the the womb has been vacuumed out like they were never pregnant I'd like very to, un, unlike a regular miscarriage um i'd like to jump towards the end of the book which um, i'm going to quote a statement that you made and uh, then i'd like to go into some background uh, some bio um, so that my audience can get to know uh, who the author is of who they are and what are they up to are all about. At the end of the book, and I thought this was just shows both of your bravery. Um, Leslie, um, you, you write that um, uh, point blank at the end, you just come out and say, if this book hits close to the mark, that we may have one of these men in black visits ourselves, just know this, we have written this book in good faith. This is what we really believe. If later you hear us refuting this work, or if we suddenly disappear or are killed, oh, to God no, be suspicious. So that I think highlights the bravery that it took to come out with all this information um, and the fact that um, you're not just trying to sell books, you really believe this. Yeah, we do. It's it's a um, a love affair uh, with this subject that we've had going for multiple decades now. It's also uh, partly from my side, from all the experiences I've had in my life. Well, can you talk to that a little bit, Steve? I would love to hear about that and um, touch on your uh, brother a little bit, too, as well. I'm sure my audience would find that uh, quite remarkable. Sure, sure. When I was 18 years old, I was... Just a little bit of background, if we have a little bit of time, I was studying Tai Chi uh, quite a bit, and I was a musician, a, a very accomplished musician. I was a cabinet maker, and I'd heard for, for multiple years about this family spirit guy called Old Glegley that would occasionally visit people going back a couple of generations. And anyway, to make a long story short, I had gone to sleep 
uh, in my work clothes from the day before on the couch in the living room. And I, I woke up, this was January of 1979. I woke up about, um, about five, five thirty in the morning. And I looked at my piano thinking what I was going to play that day. And I, I heard the fountain in the other room and I was thinking about getting up, but you know, it was still dark because it's January. And then from behind me in just maybe about two seconds time, this blue white tall being maybe six to seven feet tall came through the front door and I was facing away from it laying on my back. So I was facing away and it literally walked and kind of floated towards me in about two seconds. And it stopped by the right side of my body and it bent down and it, it, it uh, totally immobilized the right side of my body where I was literally frozen, but not in a scary way. I just couldn't move. And I said, Hi, Steve, in okay. kind of a, um, uh, a whisper. And I was thinking that, oh, my God, I'm going to actually meet this old Glegley, this, this family spirit guide. But uh, half of me was also scared because I couldn't move. Right. So anyway, what I can't remember to this day is how long the experience lasted. It seemed like, seemed like a few seconds. But what happened was that it went back out the front door. And at some point, I told my dad who'd also been having strange things happen to him as, as, did, as was my sister who was living with us. So long story short, fast forward about 1130 in the morning, I decided to go get some uh, lunch for my dad and I. So I reached into my right-hand side pocket, pulled out the coins that were still there from when I was, you know, immobilized by the entity and all the coins, these are all American coins, just regular American coins. They were all sticking together. They were all magnetized. I could pick uh -huh. up the coins with the coins, the nails with the coins and whatnot. My dad and I just looked at each other and said, well, that's not possible. Um, but you see, the, for, for me, so many things have happened to me, and I'd heard so many things growing up that I just thought, oh, I didn't think as much about it as somebody who, who it would have happened to the first time. Now, my brother, who was six years younger than me, a very bright individual. He was a, uh, a draftsman, an engineer. He taught calculus for fun uh, as an extra job at, at the college level. So anyway, in 2017, he started to become quite paranoid. He started hearing things that weren't there, and he set up a security system in his house. He was taking care of my mom. Anyway, so we think that my brother, who also had experiences by seeing grays and having missing time, he just, he couldn't take it anymore. So on his 51st birthday, he, he killed both his cats. Then he took a shotgun and killed my mom. Then he killed himself. Okay. And so he had a disturbed life. He had a disturbed life. Unfortunately. And, and he was plagued by um, uh, this, this phenomenon his whole life. He told us how, Orbs would fly up and down his, his deck and how uh, UFO lights would shine in his, his house. He slept in the closet as a child because of the little men. And uh, he told me that one time he'd been, he saw an, a gray alien in his room and then blacked out. And another time he, was, he thought he heard a cat under the bed and he reached down to pet it. And then uh, a uh, hand grabbed his arm. And again, he blacked out. And Stephen has a lot of these blackout things, too, uh, these big chunks of missing time that are just the hallmark of the abduction phenomenon. I know that uh, you mentioned in the book that um, 
you as well have seen UFOs. I think you mentioned Joshua Tree at one point, and another yes. one was near your home. Um, do you want to briefly seen, touch on that? Yeah, Steve had seen three in his life before we met, and then together we saw two more. So he's seen five. You start because your ears are earlier. Oh, the first one I saw when I was 10 years old when I was living in Woodland Hills, California, and it was nighttime, and I happened to look out the front door and I saw this large orange globe that was just floating going from uh, east to west and it was obviously not a plane and I was confounded by that you know even at that time I, even at that time in my life I'd been reading about UFOs because I'd had experiences going back to the age of three where mysterious things were happening to me and I just was curious so I, I, I actually called uh, Griffiths Observatory to find out if they had seen anything. So, well, sir, now we don't have our telescopes uh, pointed in that direction. You know, so. <laughs> and the, the next one was when I was, I think, uh, 43. I had just finished having dinner at the chart house off of um, the California coast in, uh, in Malibu. And I was going to get my car and the valet and I both saw this white light come out of the ocean off of Malibu and hover in the air for a while, then do the zigzag moves and, and fly away. And we both said, you know, did you see that? I said, oh, yeah, I saw it. And and then I saw a couple with Leslie. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll start that. Uh, and this was in 2005. And, of course, I'd heard all about Stephen's many, many, many experiences. Uh, and I believed in the phenomenon, maybe 95%. And then there it was in front of us. And suddenly my belief slams to 100% because I see the phenomenon finally. Uh, we're driving home from uh, an art meeting we had in the evenings from uh, 29 Palms to Yucca Valley. And that, that takes you through Joshua Tree. And uh, we're in Joshua Tree looking up at the sky in front of us. And there was a bright white light. At first, I thought it was maybe a plane flying into Palm Springs Airport or something. But the more I stared at it, the more I realized it can't be a plane. Uh, it seems to be just hovering, for one thing. And also, there's no corresponding lights, just this one bright white light that slowly grew brighter as we approached it, because we were still driving about 65 miles an hour on the highway. And then suddenly, it took off to the north at full speed, and was gone over the northern horizon in less than a quarter of a second. Wow. It had to have been moving at multiple thousands of miles per hour. I, have, I, I, I would have a hard time guessing, but I usually say something like 20,000 miles an hour uh, is what it seemed like to me. And then um, instantly I was a believer, and there it is. We have nothing that can move like that. Uh, and also it took off at speed. 20,000 miles an hour. It didn't slowly increase to speed and then, and then get faster. It's just at that speed. And there's nothing we can do. Uh, we can't dampen inertia. We can't uh, negate gravity. But uh, with our, our technology, you know. And our, then the most recent one we saw was about two and a half, three years ago here where we live now. In Desert Hot Springs. Yeah. And that was um, another white ball in the sky, this time moving incredibly erratically, just making V turns at speed and elbow turns at speed and then huge arcs at incredible speed. And then it would stop and hover and then go in other directions, obviously moving in ways that our, our technology can't move. 
And then again, it shot away, gone over the northern horizon. The, the funny thing for me on that experience is about 930 at night, just like a couple of weeks before Halloween, about three years ago. And we just happened to go out in our, our backyard, which is, which, is, which is tiny. And it was almost like a greeting saying, hey, we know we know that you're here. And just the, 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 the space in the sky was so small. Luckily, there are a couple other people that also saw the same thing at, at the same time, people that used to live here. Now, for me, now people say, like with some of the events I described, well, maybe it's a haunting. Well, this things that have happened to me, the missing time and the visitations, they followed me to at least six different houses. And they followed my family from England to Sonora, California, to you name it. These things have followed my family and my family bloodline. We think uh, Oglegley was, you know, an, uh, an alien abducting the family over many, many generations. For whatever reason, the genetic material that Steve has, they like, and they, they kept coming back for it uh, through his life, we believe. Because, again, with that experience, so with the, uh, the coins, um, one of the things that's the strange, so strange about it was the, the magnetizing of the coins and the paralysis on the right side. It made me think that he must have been exposed to an enormous uh, electromagnetic field of some kind, which would, would uh, cause the human body to paralyze and possibly coins to magnetize. But, uh, I can't imagine the amount of power it, must, it would take. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I always uh, love when a guest has had an experience and is willing to share that. Um, before we conclude, um, can you tell my audience uh, where they can buy your book and possibly, if you're open to it, uh, reach you and contact you or okay. any events that you might be involved in in the near future? Sure. Um, we're on Instagram now, and I'm going to start uh, trying to take in um, statements that people make and videos they send to us. You know, we're, we want to share the, uh, start using our Instagram to share these uh, experiences that people have. Because, you know, once you write a book like this, then even you get even more contacts with more uh, witnesses. Yeah. Um, so we're going to start sharing that. And we're at um, Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E dot Shaw, S-H-A-W dot author. And our Facebook handle is the same. Uh, people can buy the book on Amazon. It comes there. It's there in uh, paperback and ebook uh, and Kindle. I mean, and um, it's also on Ingram Books, which is, I guess, bookstores prefer to use uh, for ordering. So we're in both locations and uh, events. Oh, and we do have a, a website, who they are book.com. And other, what, sorry, events? Uh, we, we just did a, uh, an event a week ago in Joshua Tree, the, the book fair, and we've done, we did contact in the desert this year in June. Um, we don't have any specific events or, or you know, as far as, you know, uh, book signings coming up. But we're going to go to of. Alien Con, we believe, this year and uh, be vendors there selling the book there. Well, where is that going to take place this year? You know, they're still being cagey and haven't told us. Huh. <laughs> I know it's a different place every year. I know if it's on the East Coast, I, I may not be. We may not be able to make it. You're, you're probably familiar with David Childress, I would imagine too. Yes. And yeah, of course. So so Leslie got to meet uh, <laughs> David at 
Yeah, we went to AlienCon just as visitors, and uh, I got to meet him, and he signed our our book for him, and I gave him a free copy of our book. And (laughs) interestingly, he had never heard of the uh, of the uh, the meteor impact. The Hiawatha asteroid Hiawatha. impact. Yeah, there you go. Read. And he's so, an educated man. So yeah, it's just that the you know it was published in a couple of science articles that I found. You know, and I had heard about it on uh, TV. So I saw a news report on it, and uh, I said, "Holy, you know, holy cats!" <laughs> I jumped <laughs> to my feet. You know, it's been found. You know, because we've been looking for this thing for well two decades. I've been hoping somebody, not me personally, I haven't been out there chipping in the ice, but I've been hoping that it would be discovered um, eventually. And that kind of, when it happened, it sort of cemented our theory in place with some evidence and also um, sort of was the uh, trigger for the actual writing of the book. You know, it's like, it's time now, now that this has been discovered. Um, it was lovely talking to you and Steve as well. Um, for- Thanks for having us, Al. That's fine. Okay, uh, so this has been UFO Disclosure. I've been talking with uh, Stephen and Leslie Shaw, who are the writers of who they are and what they're up to. Fascinating book. I encourage all of you to go out and pick up a copy. It's also on Kindle, on Amazon. Um, all the good intentions and love go out to all. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Thank you.